We come again to our study in the book of Romans, and this is a study that was begun back in September of 2019. So there is much that we have looked at in the course of this study, seeing the universal need of the gospel, the forgiving grace or justification, transforming grace or sanctification, and then the spread of the gospel to both Jew and Gentile, where God is pleading with the nations to believe in his Son. And this morning, we come to this change of sections, to the life-changing relevance of the gospel. And if we look ahead, and I just picked the outline of one of my commentary friends, and to just show you something with a very practical direction that we're coming in these next paragraphs. In verses 1 and 2, the Christian attitude to God, Christian attitude to other Christians, particularly within the church, the Christian attitude to non-Christians, we're to live peaceably as much depends on us uh, with all men. And the Christian attitude to civil rulers, we're to fall into rank even if there is a Nero on the throne in Rome. The Christian attitude to people in general, and then I think somehow we need to fix the outline so it looks a little bit more like the other, but nonetheless, living in the light and love and liberty. John Lord, in his account of Rome, is going to talk about the wonderful gifts in philosophy and art that the Romans and the Greeks gave and how they were as accomplished and as advanced as any of our later Western societies. But then about halfway through that quote, Yet all this splendid exterior was deceptive. For the deeper we penetrate the social condition of the people, the more we feel disgust and pity, supplanting all feelings of admiration and wonder. It is a sad picture of oppression, injustice, crime, wretchedness, which I have now to present. Glory is succeeded by shame strength by weakness, and virtue by vice. One of the things that we may think of with ancient Rome are the various bathhouses that were central to their society. This one uh, remains to this day there in Bath in the UK. Even the baths designed for health and parting purposes became places of resort and idleness and ultimately of intrigue and vice. Some took their meals in the bath. Others bathed seven times a day. They bathed before they took their meals and after their meals to provoke a new appetite. Bodily health and cleanliness were only secondary considerations. Sensual desires was the main object. The ruins of the baths at Tyus in Caracalla and Diocletian in Rome show that they were decorated with a luxuriant magnificence and with everything that could excite the passions, pictures, statues, ornaments, and mirrors. 
the baths were scenes of orgies consecrated to Bacchus, the god of wine, and the frescoes on the excavated baths of Pompeii still raise a blush on the face of every spectator who visits them. I speak not of the elaborate ornaments, but of the demoralizing pleasures which, with which they were connected and which tended, they tended to promote. The baths became ultimately, according to the ancient writers, places of excessive and degrading extreme immorality. We remember, back to Romans 1, while they were marked by the dishonoring of their bodies, of God giving them up to dishonorable passions, how God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And it is against that background that we come with the Apostle Paul leading us by the hand to take up these words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, with that, we'll come, if you like, to the handout sheet. If you don't have a handout sheet and would like one, raise your hand, and the men will make sure uh, that you get one. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. And we want to begin by seeing something of the context of this sacrifice exhortation. And we say at the beginning that what is obvious, A, that Romans has a similarity to the book of Ephesians. It is primarily doctrinal in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, and yet some practical relevance. And Ephesians 4 through 6 is primarily practical with some doctrinal relevance. And so here, Romans 12 is the hinge, and it looks back to all that Paul has been saying from chapter 1, and it turns now to a much more practical content. Secondly, B. Romans has a logically connected content. I appeal to you, therefore, what I'm going to say to you now is built on everything that has been going before, the universal condemnation under sin, justification by faith, the sanctifying effects of union with Christ. Romans 6, you have been united with Christ, And that is going to lead to a very obvious and discernible moral change. Romans 7, you have been united to Christ. 
And therefore, you will not be left under the domination of sin. There will be a struggle, even with your remaining corruption. And Romans 8, you have been united to Christ, and therefore you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, and that Spirit of God dwelling within you is going to give you the power and the strength and the desire to deal with your sin, to help you to put to death the deeds of the body. And then there has been this international spread of the gospel. It's gone to Rome. It's going to go on to Spain. And wherever that gospel is going, people as believers need to know the truth of the gospel, and then they need to know the practical demands of the gospel. And what do we see? First of all, see the beginning practical relevance. True Christianity is not merely a moral code of ethics. Before Paul is going to come to this matter of, therefore, I want you to present your body to God, he spends these 11 chapters laying out theological gospel truth. We do not have simply, well, you walk in and for the first time, here's our list of do's and don'ts. That's really all you need to do. No, it is the external conformity. No, true Christianity starts with our believing union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And any change of life is going to grow out of that union with Christ. Don't engage in premarital sex. Why? Well, you might get STD. That's not a fundamental reason. Well, you will violate the norms of society, if you can find any society that still has those norms. You will at least be violating the norms of our family society. That's not the answer, is it? The answer as to why is you have been bought with a price and therefore glorify God in your body. True Christianity is not merely a code of ethics, but true Christianity is not merely religious talk. We don't just have Romans 12 to the end. We don't just have Romans 1 through 11. We have both. Christianity is not a theological head game. Sometimes we can meet Christians that are all, or believers that are all excited with the Christian philosophy, how everything fits together logically in the Christian worldview. And, and here is a system of thought that explains the corrupt nature of man and yet the beauty that is in the universe, God's perfect holiness, and yet God's love for sinful man. Christianity is intensely theological and intensely intellectual, but that's not all that it is. All this truth. Therefore, I want you to take your body. <laughs> what else do I have? 
I want you to take your body and I want you to present it to God as if you're putting yourself up on an altar. How am I to think of myself in the context of the church? Well, let's start here. Don't think of yourself any more highly than you ought to think. Okay. You Jews have been proud and looking down on the Gentiles. And I've had to ask you Jews, is he the God only of the Jews? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? And then we've met twice in Romans 11 to see how the Gentiles, on the other hand, were despising the Jews, looking down on them. And Paul has had to address this, and he's going to deal with it again. How am I to relate to a thoroughly pagan ruler like Nero on the throne? Well, I'm supposed to recognize that I need to submit to the powers that be. How am I going to use my hands, my eyes, my brains when I am confronted with the way of the world that is so thoroughly wicked? Well, you're going to take your body and you're going to present it to God. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present, do not present your body members of the body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. There's a context. Come with me, secondly, Roman numeral two, the nature. The nature of the sacrifice exhortation. What is it like? What is this sacrifice exhortation like? Well, first of all, A, the exhortation comes in the form of a volitional appeal. I appeal to you. I urge you. I exhort you. It would not be wrong for the apostle to command. And we don't need to go very far to find him commanding. How about the next verse? Do not be conformed. Be transformed. But here as he starts, the Apostle Paul is appealing to the will of the individual Christian. For he knows that this is absolutely critical. He is making this appeal based on his goodwill to these individual Roman Christians. He uses the word parakaleo, which brings to my mind the old days in track and field where the track coach would be there with his stopwatch right on the side, at least in the international, you've got to sit, you've got to sit in the stadium. But in the old days, you're 53, you need to pick up the pace. Calling out, making the appeal. But you and I both know that that runner has to want it. So that's really all that the coach, he can try and help him. And that's what Paul is doing here. I appeal to you. I urge you. 
But at the end of the day, the decision on what you do in the secret place is up to you. So words of encouragement. Luther picks up on this. For he who does it not willingly, but only as a result of admonition or of of warning with with a sense of threat, he is no Christian. And he who compels it from the unwilling with laws, he is no Christian preacher or ruler, but a worldly club wielder. A law driver insists with threats and penalties. A preacher of grace lures and incites with divine goodness and compassion shown to us. For he wants no unwilling works and reluctant services. He wants joyful and delightful services of God. He will not allow himself to be incited and lured with such sweet, lovely words about God's compassion so abundantly presented and given to us in Christ so that with delight and love he also does as bidden for God's glory to the good of his neighbor. If he won't do that, he is nothing and everything will be lost on him. How will he become soft and delighted by laws and threats who will not melt and soften before such fire of heavenly love and grace? I appeal to you, take your body and present it to God as a sacrifice. I can only urge you to do it. It's critically important that you do it Here is the exhortation's form. It is an appeal. It is an urging. Secondly, B, the exhortation comes in the form of a brotherly address. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brothers as inclusive of brothers and sisters to those who believe in Christ. And Paul is bringing them up and putting him on the same level. You're not any fundamental you're not fundamentally different from what I am though I am an apostle. We're on the same level, the same footing. And I am urging you to do what I need to do. Thirdly, see, this exhortation comes with a tender divine foundation. Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Mercies. It springs from the heart of God. This term of of compassion speaks of how in a man or a woman there is a, a movement in the core of our being When we hear bad news, when we hear of devastation, when we hear of a building that has come down on, there is something within us that moves. And God takes that, which we know, and he says, that is like what is going on in my heart when my mercy begins, when my grace starts moving towards you. Paul speaks of God as the Father of mercies in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3. James says in 5.11, the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And our term here is in the plural, which is drawing attention to the fact that 
It is a big pile of mercy that is found in God. It draws attention to the abundance of God's mercy. If there were no mercies in the heart of God, then not one of us would be saved. Not one of us would have a hope of heaven before us. But as it is, we've already seen in Romans that we were being justified freely by his grace. Part of his mercies. Romans 9 and verse 16, different words, same theme of mercy. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Fourthly, D, this exhortation's form has practical relevance. I appeal to you. Yes, the apostle could pull church rank, and he could say, now we're going to clean this ship up and run it like a military. And any ship associated with me, this is how things are going to run. But he doesn't do that. And there's a lesson for you and me. And one of the fundamental lessons is that the relationship of the individual believer to God is more important than the relationship of the individual believer to whatever believer may be over them. As a husband and a father has responsibility for those in his family, yet he recognizes there is something of his relationship and there is something of that individual to God's relationship. And there's something wrong with you if you care more about your relationship and you are going to be honored by this one that is connected by, if you show more concern about that than you do that individual's relationship to God, then look at the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you. And it doesn't mean that the Apostle can't command. And it doesn't mean that a dad cannot command. But it means that there is the recognition of this priority. I'm coaching you on what you need to do. There's God, there's you, and I want you to obey me, but I want you to obey God even more. Secondly, we learn, if we rightly appreciate God's mercies to us, then we will be moved with a sense of gratitude to God. The Father loved me and sent his Son in my behalf. The Holy Spirit was willing to take up an unholy dwelling in me. God has chosen me in his mercy. Not Esau and not Pharaoh and not other members of my own family at least thus far. God shows his mercy. And because of that, I am moved. 
2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and we need to live for Christ. The Holy Spirit has given me new life in Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells within me. He empowers me to overcome my corruption. He assures me that I am in a state of grace. He makes intercession for me with groanings which cannot be. If the Holy Spirit is going to do this, Let me work with him when he is urging me to make the sacrifice of my body, giving it up to God. The context, the nature. Now thirdly, the essence of the sacrifice exhortation. There is here a, the worship picture of the sacrifice. We see it from three words in our text. Our text speaks of a sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a worship picture, plain enough. Sometimes when sacrifice is used in the New Testament, it's used in the sense of Jesus sacrificing himself, offering himself as a sacrifice to the Father in our behalf. Ephesians 5, verse 2. Hebrews 10, verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. But there are other times when sacrifice is used in a figurative way. When the Philippians have sent a monetary gift, They sacrificed and gave up this, that, and the other so that they could make this collection and send it to the Apostle Paul that he could continue his mission work. That's not a literal victim being offered up, but it is nonetheless covered by this term of sacrifice. And we've got it in Hebrews chapter 30. Hebrews of all places with all of the emphasis on those Old Testament and then that once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13 and verse 15, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But very plainly, This word sacrifice brings us into the realm of Old Testament worship. There's the altar. There's either a goat or a lamb or a bull that is offered up on this altar. But secondly, our text speaks of service or liturgy, the word from which we get liturgy, our worship. Uh, which is your spiritual worship. You taking your body and offering it up to God, that is a reasonable liturgy for you. It is a reasonable and spiritual disposition of worship. This word uh, for worship is found in Romans 9 and verse four, what all did the Israelites have? Well, they had the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the liturgy associated with the temple service. 
Again, Hebrews 9 and verse 1, indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. They had things as priests that they had to do regarding the temple and its service. But then Hebrews 9 and verse 14 gives us the new covenant believer How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And the writer to the Hebrew Christians is intentionally saying, I want you to think of yourself as a priest. And I want you to think of yourself as a priest who's been forgiven. And now your activity... It's not in the temple, but it's out in the world. But you're living your life in the service, in the liturgy of God. So there's two words that point to this temple nature of the sacrifice. Sacrifice and this of worship at the end. But then thirdly, our text speaks of presentation. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And oftentimes this term has something of a public consecration note to it. Joseph and Mary, Luke 2, 22, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Lord, here's this baby you've given. We're going to present him to the Lord. Paul to the Corinthians says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband that I may present you. The day of Christ is going to be rather public. And we'll take all of you Corinthians and make you as a presentation to the Lord Jesus Christ on that day. Timothy Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. So our word here of presenting, doing something public, saying, I belong to God. This body belongs to God. Everything associated with it, all of its activities, It's dedicated to God. The term of sacrifice, the term of liturgy or worship, all of these come together to give us the plainest picture that we are priests once we are converted. And the chief thing that Paul wants us to do is to recognize Jesus Christ offered himself on the cross in our behalf to forgive us. And once we experience that, then we're to pick up our bodies and put it on the altar, dedicating it, us, to God. The Genevan. Therefore we learn that all mortals whose object is not to worship God, do nothing, but miserably wander and go astray. The central thing of the Christian life is picking yourself up and presenting yourself to God. And if you don't do that, and if you won't do that, 
then you're fundamentally missing what God intends for a believer in Jesus Christ to do. We now also find what sacrifices Paul recommends to the Christian church for being reconciled to God through the one only true sacrifice of Christ. We are all, through his grace, made priests in order that we may dedicate ourselves and all we have to the glory of God. So there we have it, A, the worship picture. Secondly, B, the substance of the sacrifice. Present your bodies. Present your body. There's a specific mention here of the body. Now, why is that? Well, elsewhere in Romans, we meet the term body 13 times. One might be Romans 1, 24, they dishonor their bodies among them. Romans 6 and verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Romans 8 and verse 10, the body is dead because of sin. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. 8.23, we are those eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body. There are two things considered here. First, that we are the Lord's. If we are going to come along and say, here's my body, God, I'm dedicating it to you, just as really as if I had taken my choice bull and plunged a knife into his heart and let him bleed out and butcher him and put him up on that altar. That bull belongs to God. As I put myself up on the altar of God, as I put my body there, I'm recognizing that I belong to to God. And the second thing involved in this sacrifice is when I dedicate something to God, when I give it to God, then that thing needs to be according to God's prescription. And if you're going to dedicate something to the holy God, then we remember that we are to be holy even as he is holy. That body needs to be holy. Now, having seen the body here, let me speak briefly the reason for the mention of the body. You may be aware that the Greeks depreciated. They did not value the body right. And someone like Plato is going to come along and say, well, the body is only the prison of the soul, that which is the soul, the inanimate, that's a higher thing. And so you, you got God at the top and all these various levels of being, and you got a stone down there, and our body is a little above the stone. Not in Paul's thought. The body is something that God gave us at creation. Body, soul, entity. And when man fell, we better believe that the body was implicated in that fall. There was the consequence of sweaty labor in the body. There was the consequence 
of the pain of childbirth in the body. And there was the consequence of physical death in the body. And in redemption, what is it? The redemption of the body, ultimately, the glorification of that body. So here this physical aspect of man is the substance of the sacrifice. It is the body, is the bull, the lamb, the goat that's being offered up. It's the body to show the graphic and earthly implications of our moral transformation. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. We'll come to that. Don't worry, not this week. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then one is written. Then too in the physical world, it is our body which meets the sinful contacts and impacts by which the power of sin invades our entire being. Let us not forget that Satan's lies use our ears as a means of entry. And Satan uses our eyes through the printed page, to mention this only this use of the bodily avenues. No doubt written in an age before the movie screen and the TV screen and the phone screen. The eyes, the ears. It's a way that the devil is going to get in touch with you is going to draw you into his service, the body. Thirdly, see, the threefold description of the sacrifice, this offering up of the body, what is it supposed to be? Well, it is, according to our text in the ESV, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And I'm just going to cover these three modifiers, one after another, living, holy, and acceptable. Obviously, Paul is not talking, when we say a living sacrifice, he's not talking that anyone is to take their own lives. Now, how would it then be a living sacrifice? Paul is not talking about expiation or taking away the guilt of our sin. There is only one sacrifice that is good enough to take away the guilt of sin, and that one's already been offered. It's once for all. But this is a public consecration of our living bodies. I am alive. And hopefully, you will want to remember your Creator in your youth and say, I have a living body. I have my whole life in front of me. And I want to offer up this living body to God and use it for his service. It is a holy sacrifice. 
a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. What does holy mean? Well, it means to be set apart to a holy use, to a special use, to God's use. Here's my body, all that I am, putting up on the altar. Now, once it's been given to God, it needs to be a holy sacrifice. It needs to be dedicated to whatever God wants to dedicate it to. Therefore, a purity of life is required. These hands, these feet, these eyes, this mouth, these ears, this mind, these procreative organs, all of them are now dedicated to God. What he says. I belong to God. I'm the one that is the priest offering it. And yet, I'm also the one that is a part of it with my hands, with my eyes, with my mind. I belong to God, and so do my eyes, and so do my ears, and so do my hands, and so do my feet. A holy sacrifice. Thirdly, a pleasing to God sacrifice. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable You remember in the Old Testament, you got a defective sheep? Don't you dare try it. Don't you dare try to take that defective sheep and offer it to God. You get a five-legged calf, like I one time saw on our farm, don't be thinking that that's a sacrifice. That thing lives. Ours didn't then it's going to be something maybe that goes in your freezer, but it doesn't go in God's temple. It has to be acceptable. It has to be pleasing to God. This very word is used again in verse 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable. There it is again. Acceptable and perfect will of God Ephesians 5.10, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Philippians 4 and verse 18, that sacrifice that you sent, Paul says, that gift that you gave me, it's a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. God has the aroma wafting towards him, and he says, oh, that's good, that's good. That represents the loving self-denial of these Philippians giving up this, that, and the other, whatever it was, and giving it over to the mission of the Apostle Paul that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up in the world. Hebrews 13, 21. Make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. And how do I know if that body that I put up there that needs to be dedicated to God, how do I know that it's going to be well-pleasing to the Lord? Well, it's well-pleasing when I do with that what God tells me to do with it. And I'm only going to know what God wants me to do with that body by reading his holy word. My body belongs to God. And it's further dedicated to God, holy. And it must be pleasing to the Lord. D, the reason for the sacrifice. 
There's an unusual term here. And our ESV is going to translate it as spiritual worship. The New King James is going to translate it as reasonable worship. And the actual word there is logicon. And you can almost hear logic in it. And the Romans got their word for logic from this word. So did the French, Middle English, and eventually on to us. Logicon. You may also hear the word logos there. The word. The word. The message. And so... In 1 Peter 2, the only other place where this word appears in the New Testament, the New King James translated as the pure milk of the word. And what they're doing is saying, you know, this word logicon is so wrapped up with the word logos for word that it comes from that we want to preserve that logos sense to this. And I get their argument. And so if we pull this string, this string is going to lead us back to Logos and its word and its message, and we pull another string and we see how the Greeks use this word, and they mean rational, logic, means you have to think about it, make sure that it's the right thing to do. You pull another string that leads back to the logos and to the the message of the reason discourse, takes us back to John 1, the incarnate word, God's revelation to us. And, And I urge you to see that a word here for reasonable or spiritual is word based. It's not spiritual in the sense, well, I've offered this up to God and I'm being spiritual and I just kind of feel like God wants me to do No. It's spiritual in the sense that I'm thinking about it and I'm making a sacrifice and I'm doing what is pleased to God and I learn that from the Word. As I study the Word and see this is what God wants me to do and that's what I'm going to do. Well, that's a spiritual process. And one lesson we learn from this is that if you make a sacrifice of your body, this is your reasonable service, this is your rational service, it's not something that just happens naturally. It's not just an involuntary act. We don't have to tell ourselves to breathe. A hippo doesn't even need to wake up to come up from the bottom of his watering hole to get a breath of air and then sink back down to the bottom and continue to sleep. Sometimes we may think that we can be involved in the worship of God or the service of God not even bother to wake up. It's just going to come naturally. No, 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 no. This is your spiritual service. This is your rational service. You've had to think about it, and you've had to decide what to do. Roman numeral four, practical demands. A key part of biblical Christianity is giving of ourselves to God. 
present yourself, present your body as a sacrifice to God. So what does this say about the selfish Christian? It doesn't put such an individual in a very good light. What about the man or the woman, the boy or girl is living for him or herself? I'm going to make my own mark in society. I'm going to make a big bundle of money. I'm going to be very, very popular and influential. All this doctrine, Romans 1 through 11, you, you were shut up before God. You know that if you stand before him, the judgment, you're going to have no excuse. And then God in his mercy forgives you. Then he sends Holy Spirit to transform you. Therefore, devote yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Live in such a way as that you have God smiling at you. You have God, oh, give me, a, give me another whiff of that Christian self-denial. Deliver your body up to God. I don't feel like exercising. I don't feel like giving up smoking. I don't feel like watching what I eat. It's God's body. What are we going to do? Yet I don't want to be unprincipled. I don't want to be an overweight Eli. I want to serve God like Samuel to the end of my life, and I want to have some measure of strength left that I can do his circuit writing. I want to have some measure of strength left that God calls me to cut Agag to pieces, that I can do it like old Samuel. I would keep my body under control. I would serve God as Paul. To have the kind of stamina for those various missionary journeys. that You can be left for dead under a pile of stones and the next day you're going to get up and walk 50 miles over mountainous terrain. A key part of biblical Christianity is giving of ourselves to God. Secondly, a key part of biblical Christianity is keeping ourselves from the shameful uses of the body. Do you think this might have been in Paul's mind? All those sexual orgies, all that is associated with the Roman bathhouse? And sometimes people have gotten this, well, it's only my body. The true part of me is my soul and my spirit. And so what my body does doesn't really matter. So I can give my body to all sorts of sexual immorality, and the real me is over here. Paul says, no. Take your body and make it a sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. And our Lord's standard is in stark contrast to the Roman bathhouse. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. If you are a Christian, 
there will be a radical break with your sinful patterns of the past. And as a believer, your conscience must be sensitive to that stuff that you see on television, that stuff which is there on your screen. And you need to think of it in terms of there's a pile of pornographic magazines twice as high as this ceiling, and it's all just a few clicks away. No, Romans 12 requires a thinking presentation of my body, my eyes, my mind. Thirdly, see, a key part of biblical Christianity is reflecting on the mercies of God. This exhortation teaches us that until men really understand how much they owe to the mercy of God, they will never with a right feeling worship him, nor be effectually stimulated to fear and obey him. The mercies of God. What all God has done for me, and how does that come in? What will move me? To say, no longer these eyes. What will move me to say, I have to exercise? What ought to be going through my mind? The multitude of his mercies. He's done all of this for me. I will do this for him. What you do with your body, Christian young person, is your thank you note to your creator and redeemer. What kind of thank you note are you preparing for God? Psalm 40 in verse 2, he also brought, my, brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay, and set my feet on a rock and establish my steps. 69, 16. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Psalm 89 and verse 1. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 119, 156. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your judgments. 145, 9. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all of his works. And let's land with this. Paul says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.
Thank you for this hinge. Thank you for this turning point. We delight in all the truth that you've given to us. And we want to delight in all these exhortations that you will be giving to us. Father, take us to a higher level. May it be, may we count it a privilege to be offering as individual Christians the individual body to you and pledging that the eyes and the ears and the mind and the hands and the feet are going to be holy. They're dedicated to you. And they're going to be used in such a way that it is pleasing to you. And help us delight in saying this is our spiritual, this is our rational. We've thought about it. And your spirit has helped us. And we're doing the right thing. This is what you would have us to do. We think of that great sacrifice on the cross in our behalf and we delight to give this thing, my body, to you. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.